0: hey everybody pre accident podcast hello 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 so this is the exciting conclusion of sydney decker's conversation and this podcast part two is the entire reason that he uh did the whole podcast is to talk about his new book. And of course uh, I talked about it earlier, but I'm kind of a trickster because uh, I got him into a conversation around other stuff first. And then that led to a conversation around the book, which I actually thought was exactly the way to do it. That was the perfect way to have that conversation. The book conversation that Sid and I have is a pretty darn good conversation. And let me tell you why I say that. Not because Um, we're both brilliant conversationalists, not like that at all. In fact, I would suggest we both love to hear our own sounds, and that doesn't make for that good a conversation. But it's because it actually gave me a much better understanding of what was going on with this book. So the book is called Compliance Capitalism. I don't know if you've read it or not. It doesn't seem like, on the surface, that title... Would be that attractive to safety people I'll just say that that's kind of risky to say and and the reason is is because it really sounds more like a book in economics um it it, it doesn't sound like a book that has to do with you know the field guide for understanding human error that that i get this one is is really it's a much different um conversation. And and to summarize it, although we're going to talk about it a lot, maybe I shouldn't summarize it. Okay, so I won't summarize it before the conversation. That would be goofy because you want to hear the conversation. But the idea of compliance capitalism has a lot to do with the way our organizations respond to the need to comply. That was good. That was. I think that probably got you interested. That probably engaged you. And that's a good way to say that. And it's not a summary. There's going to be more to that conversation as we progress through. But that is very interesting to me. Uh, And it's interesting to me as a person who works in an organization who's managing high-risk work in a varied and complex environment all the time. It's got to be interesting if you're in a refinery or if you're on a platform or in a plane. If you're in any highly regulated – help me, I can't even talk – highly regulated i'm just making words up now if you're in any highly regulated industry you know exactly what he means when he talks about the organizations need to over comply because we're all there we're all guilty of it if the rule says two we'll do three and the reason we'll do three is because we want to have that excess fudge factor in there so that when the regulator comes to audit us it looks like we're overperforming the task which looks good which actually takes a lot of heat off of us and and that's a valuable part of building relationships with regulators and so this over compliance at least the premise that is made in the book has had some consequences some unintended consequences and that in essence is where this conversation takes off and it's always fun and this one's especially fun because it's part two. So part two is, the, you know, the hair comes down, the jackets open up, the kimonos are wide open. I mean, we're talking just friend to friend. And we've been friends for a million years, a long, long time. And we really do um, get to talk to each other a lot. And I enjoy it immensely. I don't know if he does, but you'll have to ask him. But that's really where this takes off. Let me say it again because the book is called Compliance Capitalism. It's the next in a series of the Decker books. And many of you have read them all. This would be one you'd read as well. This one's interesting because it's kind of interesting. To me, the interesting part of talking to people who write books and think about problem-solving is where they're heading, the directions they're moving. And that, I think, is, I don't know, it's just super interesting. Like, like Ed Shine uh many of you are going to be familiar with Ed Shine Ed Shine really at the point he is now in his life and his career is much more attuned to the idea that we make friends and build relationships to actually understand how work happens and that's a beautiful thought i mean that's that's pretty remarkable and i like how things things start to have a finer point on them and that's kinda of what's going on here. So sit back and listen, because this is the conversation between uh Sidney Decker and uh myself. And I think you'll enjoy it immensely. This is the very specific conversation on compliance capitalism. Let's talk about the book. I'm I'm hyper curious and very interested.
1: The um so compliance capitalism uh right yeah that the, the title of the new book so Todd, yeah this is one that um that I, I really wanted to uh to write and do the research for uh for for quite a while um and it was always uh, at least in the last five or so years uh, in in the back backdrop um let me um let me give you uh, one of the opening uh, uh quotes um this is by um of course by uh um jean-jacques rousseau um who said uh right uh, l'homme est né libre et partout il est dans les fers uh, man or humans are born free yet everywhere they are in chains um right so we're born in freedom and yet we get uh, enchaînés we get chained everywhere and so um that was in 1762 right one of the enlightenment thinkers um and uh, uh you go okay so we've had the enlightenment we've uh, We did all that that thinking and revolution work in the 18th and 19th centuries, and here we are in 2021, um, and we are uh, we feel more overregulated than uh, than than ever. And so, how is that possible? Um, Particularly, and that was the that was the the question that the book uh, seeks to answer. Particularly because we have had pretty much four decades, and in some countries, two or three really accelerated decades of. Deregulation of lighter touch government, of government deliberately being voted in to move out of the way, to be uh, to have a, a, a lighter regulatory burden from the government. Um, now, John Gray, in a, in a book, uh, some funky title about Al, al- Qaeda and postmodernism or something, but um, a philosopher, he he, um, he wrote that the attempt to abolish the state results in unlimited government. And I found that such a fascinating claim, right? So the attempt to abolish the state, right? To deregulate, get out of the way, actually results in unlimited government. And you know what? In my research for this book, that's exactly what we see. That's exactly what we see. The... um, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example right off the bat, but then um, we uh, we can unpack that a little bit. But so here's one example: um, healthcare in the U.S. is one of the most overregulated and compliance burdened industries in the world. Um, if if even if there were no neutral ways to measure that, which there probably aren't anyway, but um, most people within healthcare in the U S would claim that I, the compliance burdens are amazing. I was talking to a, an emergency, sorry, a intensive care doc uh, in Texas. And uh, she told me that um, uh, every 12 hour shift, she says she can fill with 16 hours of paperwork. Yeah. And I go every 12 hour shift, you can fill with 16 hours of paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> and so you go, but that doesn't compute. No, that equation, no, you can't. No, exactly. And, she went, you know, and oh, by the way, there's patients to see as well. <laughs> right? so, um, so that experience. Now, um, Carillon and others have done the research on this and told what is really, really uh, interesting is that only 22% of all of that compliance work in healthcare is directly relatable to regulations or statutory requirements, right? 78% is created by the healthcare market itself. Wow. All of the tracing, tracking, recording um, is done for insurance requirements, is done because basically because healthcare is a very complex market-driven industry in your country, right? I'm not saying that countries who have, you know, uh, single-payer systems or, or government-driven uh, systems have less, um, necessarily less compliance burdens, or fewer compliance burdens, though, um, give you an example of a doc in Sweden, right? A doctor in Sweden will, will never be burdened by billing, by thinking about, um, you know, how, how much insurance do I need to pay in order to manage my lawsuits? Because that's handled very differently in a country in which the state is, is very present in these things and, in fact, owns and runs healthcare everywhere, right? So except for some fringe, fringe things around the edges, but, um, but it's interesting. So 78% of all of the rulemaking in healthcare is made up by healthcare, right? Because of the way it, it is run. And so um, on average, on average, across all industries, about 60%, right? So three out of five rules are made up by the industry. Two out of five, are related directly to a regulation or some statutory requirement or some law, but three out of five is made up yourself. And so, um, for example, uh, asking a contractor to uh, supply you with uh, um, their um, uh, their take fives or, you know, what, what are you going to use on this site, right? And if for you to bid on this work, you know, this is the requirement. Oh, more compliance burdens. Yeah. Ultimately, the, the law in most countries asks you one thing, and that is to show uh, duty of care, right. right? Now you can show duty of care in all kinds of ways, right? Uh, but we have translated that duty of care into 15,000 different little rules and requirements and contractor uh, uh, expectations. And so, but let me give you a very concrete example, which is really interesting. So in, let me, let me dig this out. Um, in, um, in 1981, Right. When this really started with with uh, with with Reagan and Thatcher, um, who who had serious issues to deal with from, you know, the, the stagflation of the 1970s and some of the really uh, uh, big economic woes that came out of the uh, um, sort of the end of the post-war boom. Right. That drove the 50s and 60s and you know, set most baby boomers uh, up for a pretty good course in life. But 1970 sort of took the heart out of that in most countries. And so Thatcher and Reagan were chosen, uh, elected, uh, and, and, you know, similar types of governments in other countries to try to fix these things. And so remember what Reagan said, right? 1981, he says, government regulations impose an enormous burden on large and small businesses in America. They discourage productivity and they contribute substantially to our current economic woes. And so... Um and it's it's fascinating to see that it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, uh, because Bill Clinton was just, just fuller in those footsteps when it comes to deregulation and you know, slashing some of the things, as did of course um uh W uh George W. Bush. Um, who then in uh the nineteen nineties, uh sorry, the early two thousands repealed the ergonomic standards for um uh for office work, broadly speaking. And so um as in that regulation is going to go. He signed this. This is one of the first things that he signed into law uh, very early on in his administration um, before 9-11 happened uh, in order to signal, hey, look, I am a regulation slashing president. I'm going to right, And again, um, I'm not I'm not trivializing the burdens uh, that government imposed at all. By the way, that's not the point of the book, right? The point of the book is not to take a political position on this. It is explaining sort of the dynamics and mechanics that we've brought on ourselves by by embracing uh, free markets as a solution to these things instead. Um, But the um, um, so what I wanted to find out was okay, so you repeal the standard. What happens then? Um, So basically, um, OSHA Right in the U.S., um, wanted to have the right, and they they said this in 2000, uh, to prescribe where appropriate the type and frequency of medical examinations or other tests which have to be made available, um, right by the employer or at their cost. By the way, to employees that are exposed to these hazards of sitting. At computers, because this was, of course, uh, an issue that that sort of exploded into view in the 1990s, right? RSI's and people sitting at screens way too long. And so, so OSHA came in pretty strong and said, we, the federal government, are going to help workers here um, not get injured. And if they do, then we're going to make sure that they're being taken care of. Um, so that was repealed. That was thrown out. Uh, only Only four weeks after that actually becoming uh, law itself, but then it was thrown out um, and in a beautiful description of how this then ends up being right we go um, uh, as as bush in his, in his, in his signing statement said you know the, the safety and health of our workers is the priority of my administration right um, uh, or a priority right today um, So we're pursuing a comprehensive approach that addresses the concerns, and we're going to work with Congress, and we're going to work with the business community, and we're going to work with our workers to address these important issues. Um, Of course, as you know, perhaps we're we're cynical for a reason now that Congress didn't do much of anything, um, but uh, to address the important issues, but workers had to. And this is known as a trend called responsabilization. It's a terrible word, but basically seeing workers as responsible agents, free agents, right? They have to make the decisions. They have to make the choices. Remember that word that we talked about in in many contexts, right? They have to make good choices about how to sit, and we can help them with that. Before too long, what is the thing that you see appearing in workplaces around the US and, and other countries that, that, that deregulated this area. You see the emergence of how to sit at your desk checklists. You see the emergence of ergonomics consultancy companies. You see the market flooding back in, right? And now you give these checklists to workers. I have them for my university. I mean, we, we have to fill them in even for working from home. Oh my God. Um, These checklists typically take like 20 minutes to fill in, right? And you have to make all kinds of judgments about what is appropriate height, what is appropriate length, what is, right? So, but you are a responsible worker. You have to make good choices. And if you, once you've ticked the boxes that you've done all these things, you cannot come back to your employer and say, I'm suing you for RSI or any other injury. No, because you did your checklist, right? And so um, to me, the... I mean, mind you, the loss of productivity, because 20, 20 minutes right, disappears because you have to do the checklist. Every time you change desk, you have to do the checklist again. Some companies change your whole desk, in, meaning you have to do this every day, right? And so so we've got rid of the supposed OSHA compliance burden only to give it back to the worker, to fill out these bloody checklists and to then have a rough deal at the end of it because they've essentially um, abdicated from their, their, their right to get adequate compensation for these things. And so um, the, um, you could make the argument, right, that with the repeal of that sort of regulation, everything changed, and yet very little did. Um, what what, what it changed was less money for the state, And less work for the state because, you know, we have no regulation to keep on the books. We don't have to inspect. We don't have to do work around it. Um, we have less money for workers, but more work for workers. Right. And we have more money and more work for market actors who produce these checklists, who consult into this space, right? Who print them out and, you know, distribute them and record them. And I, and for bureaucratic, you know, managers within the companies themselves to keep track of all these things and put their signatures on. And so there's a lot of work for these people and a lot of money for these people. But workers have a have sort of the rough end of the deal, right? More compliance burden, less protection. That's the theme of the book. You see that everywhere. And so I trace through a whole bunch of reasons of why that is so.
0: Well, today. let me ask in my best Terry Grossian way, because that is a really good way to ask that question, is... <laughs> This is really a counterintuitive idea, and it's counterintuitive because we've made it counterintuitive. The, the belief that – that the, the classic sort of Thatcherian comment that government is not the solution. Government is the problem, right, the, 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 sort of the, the reagan statement. That belief yeah. then is if, if the government deregulates, then the world will be an easier place is, is simply not true. And we have tremendous amounts of data. Anybody who works anywhere knows exactly the story you just told, but that's so counterintuitive to the way we've been taught to believe, or we've been told to believe, or we think we believe, how how do we start uh, short of this fabulous book you've written? How do we start this discussion (laughs) in a, in a way that can start to crack that, that concept?
1: It's the, that phrasing the question that way of a professor is deeply unfair, my dear friend, you know, <laughs> because the answer is read the book, read the book, right? First, you have to realize that the problem is there, right? And so the best way to do that is to actually educate yourself in it, read, listen, um, and then, um, then create some, 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 uh, pathways for, for, for change. Um, but that to me is a very cheap way of, uh, of trying to sort of squeak out of answering your question um i think uh oh god um if we go back to the responsibilization uh Todd, of of the workforce right that you're responsible uh for 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 your health and safety um we see this expressed in so many ways that it it doesn't only relate to the problem that we just discussed, which is the feeling of, of compliance burdens. Um, I mean, it certainly exists there, but if you have a workplace where in the toilet and I can only speak to the men's toilet, um, but in the toilet, um, you have stickers on the mirror that says, um, that say, uh, So sorry. Let's let's get rid of that piece because I was, or all of a sudden thinking about the toilet wars in Alabama and stuff. So let's not have. (laughs) We can take that out. Good God! Sorry. Let me let me do that again. (laughs) Good Lord, your country is so sensitive.
0: Oh God, it's
1: not easy. easy. if you have a workplace where in the uh, in the toilets you have on the mirrors uh, a sticker that says um, you are looking at the person most responsible for, uh, for their own safety or something to that effect, that's part of the same trend of responsabilization, of encouraging or basically forking over the good choices for health and safety onto the worker, him or herself. Right? Whereas, of course, that is completely inconsistent with the human factors war from the 1940s onward, which is um, if you want people to make, uh, make good choices for their health and safety, you gotta give them the equipment to do it with, right? right. Which means the, also the, the organizational operational preconditions, supervisory preconditions, the tools, procedures, uh, things that work for them rather than against them. And so, um, uh, to then say, uh, I mean, you are most responsible for your health and safety. What, I, Oh, on a on a bathroom mirror. Oh my God! Um, what I'm trying to say with that example, Todd, is this: um, I think the the ideas that were brought into being with this shift away from relying on government to help solve these problems are so deep and severe, and so widespread in so many areas of worker life today that it would be very difficult to just say, "Oh, let's do some decluttering, and get rid of some rules. Uh, we can uh, we can then all uh, move forward." Uh, again, of course, decluttering and removing some rules is a good thing. But don't get me wrong. It's a very good thing, right? How do you start that? It's asking, what's the stupidest thing that we're asking you to comply with today? Oh, yeah. let me tell you, you know, it's a great question to ask, as you know, right? And they and always so, have
0: answers. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you have to be open-minded enough and not come in judgmentally. To, oh, so you're telling me you're violating this every day. <laughs> right. I mean, that's not a very good reply, right? Because that sort of shuts up the conversation, Um, but um, I think uh, another thing, you know, so the book talks about uh, auditing and auditism. So I called it auditism, which I thought was very clever, Um, but uh, the idea that audits become consistent only with themselves. Right. And so, um, I mean, Power and others have written about the, 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 uh, the enormous burdens and, and, and relative uselessness of auditing, because you hardly ever find anything new or surprising, novel, um, but audit loops are, are, um, are the, the, the situation in which a company makes sure that its safety management system, for example, is written in a way that makes it auditable rather than in a way that has anything to do with how frontline work actually gets safer or less safe. And that is not untypical, right? These systems, these procedures, these processes in organizations are made and created in order to be auditable. Um, and why do they have to be auditable? Because government regulations no longer really describe how you should do um, a, a lot of your safety work. As long as you meet your duty of care and 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 some other broad uh, stipulations, yes, some industries have have very specific rules for certain things, which is fully a good thing, right? Government government created uh, aviation could, for example, be be one. Um, But in in a whole bunch of other industries, the relationship has gradually shifted from this compliance-based regulation to a risk-based or a performance-based regulation, right? Where the regulator now also acknowledging that they have neither the resources nor the expertise at home to do this really well, to really know what is going on at the most detailed, nuanced operational level. Um, So they asked companies instead to, hey, show me that you've got risk under control, right? You convince us. Right? And how am I going to convince you? Here's the answer. All, what I've seen is that the typical response of a company is to do what my first year students do, which is um, when you ask them a question on the exam, they write everything they know. <laughs> you get 40 pages of you know, the brain dump. Right? It's all there. And, and I'm sure, I, I, hope, I hope that there is something in there that allows me to pass the test. There must be, because I've given you everything. Right. And that's sort of the same response that we see um, that I think explains a lot of the compliance burden that we feel. Right. That um, regulator says to the company, hey, convince me that you know what you're doing. Convince me that you got risk under control. Okay, right. Oh, let me show you. Right. Here's a safety management system. It's really auditable. Right. Right. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with how you work, but it is auditable. Right. Um, But it also means that you'll never find anything interesting in it. Right? So um, challenging that um, can be done. I mean, Kim Bancroft and others have, uh, in, in my student um, uh, cohorts here have written about auditing differently. For example, wrote a whole master's thesis about it, right? How can we use safety differently, safety two principles in auditing so that we don't get caught in these audit loops that become just consistent echo chambers, basically, right? Um, that only give you what you look for. And we already know what you're looking for because we built the system for it, right? <laughs> Uh, it's silly, keeps people at work and keeps the market happy, by the way, right? Because often this is sort of farmed out to third party right. companies or consultants, right? So, um, yeah.
0: But as, now, long, as long as we make risk based uh, compliance regulations, as long as we talk about risk based management like that, we're always going to build in that sort of overachieving bureaucracy, right? Companies are always going to think if two's good, three's better, four's even better, <laughs> five's the best.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the the real conversation to be had, and I think you and I already have in certain cases, and I think we should have more of them, in fact, jointly, uh, is with regulators, is to say, here's what you should resist, right? Here's what you should say no to, right? Um, and uh, I think the other ones that we can get on side here, uh, Tolster, rather counterintuitively, is legal, is lawyers, because they tell me one thing, and that is the more you're right, the more you're going to be found non-compliant with it, right. right? The more rules you produce internally, the more you're going to be found out of compliance, the more liabilities you're actually creating for yourself, right? That voice needs to be a hell of a lot louder in boardrooms and elsewhere, right? Because lawyers often are those who ultimately get to advise boards, unfortunately, but get to advise boards about health and safety policies within the company, right? And if, if the voice there says very strongly, hey, board, the more your managers produce, the more rules they write, the more trouble we're going to get you into, right? Um, that, would be, that would be really helpful. So I think from those unexpected angles, right, from regulators to push back and say, no, I asked for two. I don't want three. I'm going to give you your homework back because I asked for two. Just, just with my students, right? If they send me 40,000 words in an answer, I say I stopped reading after 1,500 words because that's what the assignment was, right? So the rest doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. Perhaps regulators should do the same thing,
0: but getting getting organizations to to it's just a really this is a great idea for a book. I'm so proud of you. It's, mm. This is a this is a real challenge because they think what they're doing is is the right thing. They think more control equals more control, right? More more compliance is
1: more compliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. and and yeah. what you're saying quite beautifully is that that's simply not the case. It's not the case.
1: The opposite is true. And and apropos the um, the issue of, of worker retention and worker attraction, right? If you have created a, an organization that makes it miserable on the front lines because 78% of all the rules that your people need to follow are made up by your system and the markets in which it operates rather than the government that sort of regulates that industry – then how long are they going to want to stay? You yeah. know, remember the doc, right? Sixteen hours of compliance work in a twelve-hour shift. Yeah. You know, at some point, and I mean, and in fact, she has. <laughs> She's graduated out of the clinical work and is now, in fact, in the hospital administration. I mean, I'm not saying that that is necessarily a good thing, but um, I mean, I can understand that clinicians just get so fed up with it, right? Um, so,
0: taking away though, is hard. Which I Basically, guess is the, pre- the premise of the book, right? I mean, it's, it's, that's, mm-hmm. we have to start with this discussion before we have the second discussion.
1: Putting things in is easy. Taking things out is super hard. Micro-experimenting with it, you know, micro-experimenting with decluttering is certainly possible. But I also, also think, Totster, that they're, having a greater awareness of, of where the rule comes from, right? Um, why it was written, who wrote it, right, on the basis of what is incredibly empowering. Because then you probably can relate it back to, I don't know, a single incident, as, as, as you and I often discover, right? Um, and you go, yeah, well, that was really cute. And you thought that this additional rule could stop that incident from happening ever again. Well, newsflash, that precise incident is very unlikely to repeat itself, right? It's going to be slightly different. And it may well circumvent the rule you just made up. Um, but in general, and I think you and I do this all the time, writing new rules to plug holes discovered by some incident is a bad organizational safety strategy, Right. It's behind the curve. It's uh, it's it's too limited. It's anyway. And so, uh, very often, a rule or some barrier doesn't help against re- preventing it anyway. So, but uh, it
0: could you know, be it could them. be professional suicide to ask about rule fidelity. I, I I agree with you one hundred percent. The most mm. important question that you can ever ask is where did this rule come from? What's the origin of this okay. rule? Does fidelity. this rule have fidelity? It's
1: <laughs> professional suicide. Yeah. So I think if or, we, are, or career if,
0: limiting, maybe I should say career limiting. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, I mean, given the
1: newly empowered uh, workforce in in a, in a market full of labor shortage, um, there is some advantages that 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 one would have, obviously. But I think the other thing, if a regulator and a board is already uh, literally on site when it comes to this this sort of insight, as as we discussed before, then that certainly helps. If that message comes from above as well as below, um, then at some point. You know, managers have to start paying attention.
0: Agreed. And I actually think the board level is a really great place to have this conversation. And I think they're willing to mm-hmm. have it because I think you – Oh, yeah. Simply recognizing that a lot of this is created, we're over-complying because – With of, our own stuff. Yeah, with our <laughs> own stuff because of a, a sundried reasons. There's lots of them. Then mm-hmm. it becomes easier to take those away. But I think the origin of that – and that's why this idea of compliance capitalism is really – this is a bold idea – But the timing seems really right on the back of the the sort of the uncertainty we've been the pandemic that we've we've been dealing with. People are asking questions about fidelity of operational rules all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I
1: mean, the the publisher wanted to call it compliance capitalism. I mean, I I had a different title in my previously, but, but they thought compliance capitalism because. When when they started looking at the research in this book, the publisher went, but there's so much money to be made out of this by so many people right. in the market, right? All of these consultancies and you know and 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 bureaucratic layers of audits. I mean, there's so much money, which means there the stakes are so high for so many people to retain the status quo, right? Um, and it feeds on fear, right? The fear of being found non-compliant, the fear of not of of basically showing that the emperor has no clothes when they when the regulator comes knocking, right? And so, um, which is misplaced as we, as we indicated before, right. but it's easy to feed it, easy to feed it. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, ultimately, Tosser, my role, I think, um, is uh, as as, a, as, a, as an author, as a writer, um, uh, in addition to the other roles that I suppose I have, but as an author is to create both the space and the scholarly backdrop right. for an intelligent, informed discussion about this. That's what I'm doing.
0: This had to have been a satisfying book to, to work on and complete. Was it? I, uh, yeah, not as, not
1: as satisfying as, for example, Drifted to Failure. I had more fun writing that. Um, I mean, at some point the, the nuts and bolts of writing this can get really tedious. You know, you're going into, really an OSHA act on, on, on RSIs and office where you go, how exciting can that be? You know? So, right. uh, and yet the political dynamics underneath it are, are super interesting to see if you can lay that bare and make that visible. That's, that was, that was very
0: cool, and, but it um, seems well-timed and really important. The the message seems really important. Even, even the discussion earlier around, um, responsibility, I can't say a responsabilization. How do you say that's it? it. Right? Yeah, that's it? That, that goes back to this this incredibly poignant struggle that we're dealing with right now around how much agency does a worker have? And we're learning yeah. it's a lot. I mean it's more than we, we thought it was. If, they're, they're, yes. yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're they're voting with their feet. I mean they're voting with their feet. They're leaving. They're leaving. Yeah. 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 Very true. Very true. Yeah.
1: It is a good time. It is a good time for this book. I agree.
0: And that's the conversation what do you think i told you it kind of makes the book it's now all of a sudden i'm really interested yahoo so that's cool that's a good thing that's really a good thing so we're way over time i owe you but i you know i've i've done a couple short ones so i can buy a little time so be good to each other be kind um learn something new every single day bet you did today it was pretty easy today right have as much fun as you possibly can be kind to each other check in on one another and for goodness sakes you guys go get compliance capitalism And uh, be safe.